So again, good morning and uh, welcome to this uh, Wednesday gathering. I'd like to continue to explore the theme of empathy, exploring both its nature and how we practice empathy, how we develop and cultivate empathy. I'm presenting it as a kind of uh, practice. I think it's a a kind of emerging Western heart practice that is more interpersonal, more relational, and that can, in a sense, um, bring out some of the flavor of our heart practices like loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, gratitude, forgiveness, but that brings it out in a certain way. And I'd like to think that it can become a staple for our toolbox of ways to bring our practice into our being with others, our relationships, including our relationships with ourselves. It's a very fundamental practice. So last time I gave an overview uh, about empathy, its nature, some on the biology and the research uh, done on empathy, which, of which there's a lot, and uh, pointed to some of what stands in the way of empathy, as well as ways to practice. Some of the questions that came up in our discussion and in uh, discussion afterwards had to do with some of the challenges of empathy practice. Uh, how does one maintain empathy when you have aggression coming at you, when there are differences of views relevant to the presidential election? Uh, how do you maintain empathy when, uh, when there's conflict? How do, you, how do you maintain empathy when in more challenging situations and so forth? So... I want to give a little more focus today to working with the challenges of empathy practice, but I will give a um, review of what we covered last time, because I I imagine there are uh, quite a number of people. How many were not here last time? Okay. So it's uh, about half the group. So I'll I'll give a review and uh, also point out some of the different ways that we can practice. Okay? But with a, with a pointer towards uh, some, of the, uh, some of the challenges of working with empathy, which is really a, a filling out of the whole uh, question of how we practice. Because as we practice empathy, the, the challenges are there r- almost right away. Okay? So um, a quick definition of empathy right now, just to begin with, that uh, I'm defining empathy as the capacity, which is innate, to tune in to the experience of a person. Typically, we understand empathy to be tuning in to the experience of another human being, particularly another person. We also can be empathic towards ourselves, and I think we can be, uh, definitely be empathic towards non-humans. I'll bring that out later in, in uh, looking at empathy. Again, something we didn't look at so much last time. So it's the tuning in 
to uh, someone's experience. And I think we, we tune in, in in three basic ways, and this is what the research shows, that there are three basic forms of empathy. One is particularly related to the emotions, and that's the, probably that's the usual understanding we have of empathy, that we're tuning in to someone else's emotions. And again, these are... This is a natural capacity rooted in the limbic system of being able to tune in to someone's emotions. And the, the research also shows that there are actually distinct parts of the brain where we also can tune in to someone's uh, perspective or what in the literature is called that they're thinking. We'd say their perspective, what matters to them, how they're thinking about something. So more of the more the, the dimension of uh, cognition and understanding. And then there's a third dimension, which is a little more somatic, where we actually can tune in somatically. It's as if, uh, again, the research seems to suggest that when we see someone acting in a certain way and moving the body, there are neurons in our own being which sort of resonate. <laughs> These are called the mirror neurons. And uh, mirror neurons are... Uh, I think, named because they have this, there's this sense that they are activated uh, when our brains are, for, are functioning normally, which is definitely not all of the time. And when our brains are functioning normally, uh, empathy is activated. And we can have empathy in these different ways. Uh, I mentioned last time that the research shows that one can actually have empathy, empathy uh, not developed in all three ways. So that some people who are actually uh, can be uh, have major psychological disorders, be psychopathic and or sociopathic, that actually they may have empathy in one of those three dimensions, but not maybe not have emotional empathy. And so it's quite interesting, you know, quite interesting what the uh, the research shows. And so empathy is this tuning in to another's experience in, in those three ways. And we especially, I think, use the term, and I'm uh, to, point to, uh, uh, point to the emotional uh, quality of empathy, the ability to know what another what person is feeling in the, in the emotional sense. Many people think that empathy needs to be much more highlighted in contemporary society, that there are many uh, failures of empathy that occur. And we we looked at a lot of the reasons that empathy isn't there, that, uh, you know, we talked about different uh, ways that self-centeredness or fear or uh, trauma, all sorts of uh, forces can make empathy harder. Certain um, failures of parenting, so to speak, using failure not so much in a moral sense, but just in a sense that empathy did not happen. Empathy doesn't happen for a significant number of children, and they may not be quite able to develop empathy. You know, when when there's... uh, you know, in terms of the psychological literature, when there's not what's called good attachment, 
well, basically good connection with the parents when the parents are preoccupied or overly busy or not really interested in parenting <clears throat> the child doesn't receive empathy and may, and then and in turn may <clears throat> not be able to be empathic towards others so all sorts of barriers a lot of the social conditioning makes empathy harder i mentioned how the the liter- literature is very clear that women um, in our society have more empathy than men. There's very, very clear research on that. People are less clear about the reasons for that. You know, some people would attribute it mostly to the conditioning, others actually to the biology. And there's some research that seems to show that women have uh, more mirror neurons than men. But as, as I mentioned last time, the difference isn't enough to give up hope for men. And that there's uh, the possibility for all of us is to train and, and develop an empathy. So for a lot of people, there's a sense that empathy is this very important quality to develop, to really um, have occur more in the raising of children, in education, and, and more largely in the society. And we've, I mentioned last time how we can see that in many ways um, uh, empathy is often lacking in uh, um, some of the presidential candidates. Um, I won't go into detail there. I think you know what I mean. But, you know, essentially with one of the candidates, uh, virtually, you know, it's like... 80 or 90% of the population, maybe not that much, but maybe 60, 70% of the population is essentially written off, right? There's there's a failure of empathy, namely for women, immigrants, Latinos, African-American, people who are disabled, probably uh, they're they're anti-Semitic dimensions, so for Jews, it goes on and on, right? And so, uh, and, and the other main candidate, as I mentioned last time, also has at times not been empathic, particularly towards her main opponent's followers, right? And we can make that case. And we'll come back to that, uh, that point later. But people have, have uh, talked about empathy. This is a story about President Obama. In 2008, Karina Encarnacion an eight-year-old girl from Missouri, wrote to President-elect Barack Obama with some advice about what kind of dog he should get for his daughters. She also suggested that he enforce recycling and ban unnecessary wars. (laughs) Obama wrote to thank her and offered some advice of his own. If you don't already know what what it means, I want you to look up the word empathy in the dictionary. I believe that we don't have enough empathy in our world today and it is up to your generation to change that. And it's been a major theme for him. And again, there are a lot of people who have pointed to the importance culturally of having uh, empathy be much more well-developed and see it actually as a way to uh, deal with our ma- some, many of our major systemic issues, such as even uh, climate disruption, uh, uh, racism, uh, immigration, and so forth. That that uh, in many of the discussions there is a lack of empathy. So we saw we see a lot of the the uh, ways that 
empathy is blocked in certain ways from, by social conditioning. I mentioned last time how the, uh, some of it seems to occur somewhat naturally. Some of you know the research on implicit bias, which is, which is, which is that we all tend to have in-groups and out-groups. And generally, those in our in-groups get empathy, and those in our out-groups do not. And the outgroups uh, can be formed on all sorts of bases, very commonly formed on the basis of the perception of uh, gender, race, age, disability, sexual orientation, all the different categories. That when people have some of those people in outgroups, they don't get empathy. Right? And that is actually despite what they would prefer to do. You know, what, you know, implicit bias. I, I, it was interesting. I listened to the vice presidential debate, and the vice pre- Mr. Pence, uh, actually was confused about the nature of implicit bias. He thought it meant that people were bad and prejudiced, but it's actually about conditioning, and it goes against people's stated views. The research shows that th- this kind of conditioning is so strong that uh, people can have you know, actually stated views that they are not biased and their conditioning will, you know, when it comes down to how they act, the implicit bias trumps people's stated views. So it's actually the unconscious conditioning which you can notice in yourself. The, the good news is it's reversible. But it it's, obviously can't be reversed on the basis of denial. <laughs> Generally not a good strategy. <laughs> For learning, and so, um, so, so actually developing an empathy is a major project, right? It's a major project personally. It's a major project socially, and uh, a lot of the people who've been pointing to ways that empathy can be most well developed see mindfulness as a key tool. A lot of the contemporary uh, researchers on implicit bias are using mindfulness because mindfulness lets us track what's there. You know? And you can start to notice uh, things even if you say, oh my God. You know? we, we sometimes say that uh, when you really look at the mind, you find that the mind has no shame. And mindfulness, when it gets strong, is okay with seeing things that are not so pleasant. The Tibetan teacher Trungpa Rinpoche says, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> and we learn, to, we learn to work with that. So, and it's, you know, it's shared, right? You know, a lot of this conditioning is shared. So there's, uh, uh, mindfulness can be uh, a major Resource, and I think it's being developed by many of the leading people trying to develop further uh, capacities of empathy, or you know, even in training police and so forth. That mindfulness is right on the cutting edge of of uh, training. You know, more is needed than mindfulness, but but it's I think part of the toolbox, and it's what we're developing. So, um, so there are a lot of things which stand in the way of empathy, and. Make it uh, make it hard. Uh, you know, I mentioned the obviously social conditioning, 
the styles of parenting, uh, the, you know, just, I mentioned last time, uh, busyness makes things hard. And we also, when we went around, we looked at, um, we looked at some of the further ways that empathy is more difficult. And we mentioned, uh, you know, basically fear, reactivity, it's very hard to be empathic when we're startled. You know, I, I thought of, Sylvia likes to say one of her wonderful phrases. She says, when we're not scared and we're not startled, our hearts are good, right? And there's a way that, that uh, empathy is expression of that. Empathy is really an expression of our deep natural heart and mind. And when we're not empathic, it represents a contraction of our basic nature, which occurs for different reasons, you know, occurs because of fear, reactivity, being startled, and so forth. So last time I gave, uh, I think, uh, three practices, three main practices, they're kind of interrelated, to help us develop an empathy. And the first one uh, came out of uh, <clears throat> the work that I and my colleague Oren Sofer have done with mindful communication, particularly make, making use of nonviolent communication developed by Marshall Rosenberg. And it, it um, particularly points at one way to cultivate empathy that I, I gave last time is to tune in to the emotions and the sense of what matters for another person and to deliberately do that. And to do that as a regular practice, just to say, I will intend to be empathic and I will tune in to what this person is uh, feeling. And I will try to tune in to what, the, what seems to matter for the person, what in the language of nonviolent communication is called needs, which, uh, but to sense, this is really, this is similar to what the psychologists talk about as the person's perspective or thinking. So these two dimensions we practice. And I, I uh, gave you a way to practice by speaking for a minute or two and inviting empathy from you towards me, um, which, which felt quite good because you were all extremely empathic. Apparently, you know, uh, empathy occurs when we feel somehow safe, grounded enough to really just let the heart be there, let the heart be open. So I'm going to do that exercise one more time. So I'm going to speak for about a minute or two, and I want you to tune in to my emotions on the one hand and what seems to matter for me on the other. Okay? Ready? Set your intention? Okay. And I'm, you know, try to just come up with two or three emotions that you notice and maybe one or two uh, responses to the question, what matters for me? Okay? And, okay, so... Um, I'm coming to the end of my uh, sabbatical, which has been about six months, and I've been able to work on my book on transforming the judgmental mind, and I have a little bit of, uh, a little bit of uh, mm, apprehension or sadness that's coming to an end, and uh, I've been having to give more attention to take care of things and haven't been able to have so much time for writing in the last uh, week or so, and... Um, on the other hand, I printed out uh, what I've written so far for this book on transforming the judgmental mind, uh, 
and I printed out uh, 270 pages double-spaced. Yay. Okay. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, let's use a mic. And so this is basically, I'm, I'm uh, doing this partly so you can have, it's a very commonsensical practice, right? But you can do it all the time in your daily lives. Just tune in. You can do it watching the debates tonight. If How many of you are going to watch that? How many of you are considered watching it but will not watch it? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm on the fence myself. The last one was a hard experience to me. It was, it was rough. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, first let, we'll, we'll divide them. Let's start first. Name uh, an emotion that you noticed. Pride. What? Pride. Pride, okay. Next to her? Next to her? Frazzled. What? Frazzled. Fragile. No. Fra- frazzled. Frazzled, yeah. Okay. <laughs> frazzled is um, a motion that probably didn't exist in the 19th century. <laughs> I, I heard joy and pride also. What? Joy, joy and pride. Joy? Joy. Yeah. Pride. Yeah. Anxiety about change. Anxiety, yeah. A little fear. What? Fear. Fear, yeah. We're related to anxiety a little higher level. Maybe one more? Regret. Regret. Right, so, um, so it's interesting to receive empathy. Some of those said yes. Some of those said, oh, I didn't think about that. Some said, hmm, is that, was that there? <laughs> you know, and so um, very interesting. But mostly felt uh, connected, right? We looked last time. What it feels like to receive empathy is basically very positive. It may be what we most want in life, right? Is to be seen, heard, understood, met, right? How about the uh, sense of what mattered for me? Yeah, uh, let's wait for the mic. Sorry, I didn't hear. I think um, what ma- one thing that matters is for you is sinking deep into your peace. Sinking deep? <coughs> yeah. Let's, is the mic on? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I didn't hear that so well. Uh, so uh, Anna had one. Um, I think it's like... A little closer. <coughs> I'm sorry. Um, coming to uh, the end of a project that is probably really wanted... Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So, sort of appreciating the end of a process. Yeah. So, let's do a few more. Yeah. I sense a profound desire to help. Desire to help. Yeah. Yeah. So that I didn't even say that, but you were hearing that, right? And that that's interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, also, the joy that you find in writing. Yeah. Yeah. Some joy in in the. Uh, um, some sense of completion, yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. Great. So that's that's enough. So you get a sense of the practice, right? So you can work with this yourself in your interrelationships. You don't have to mention. It's a whole another issue what you say to another person, but you can actually tune in empathically and take this as a practice. It's um, it requires clear intention, requires mindfulness. 
Uh, but you know, the basic understanding is that we have this capacity. You know, and to some extent, for you know, we might be able to feel the emotions a little more directly, have a sense of less uh, <clears throat> maybe doubt about the emotions when we're being empathic than the sense of what mattered. To some extent, we might be uh, guessing to some extent. There might be well-founded guesses, but that can be part of uh, empathy. This is where, uh, before they had the word empathy, some of the writers in the Western traditions used the word moral imagination to talk about what is essentially empathy, to really put yourself in someone else's shoes, so to speak. And uh, so it can involve some guessing, which is perfectly okay. You know, when I, when I work uh, one-on-one with people, for example, their, you know, empathy is a core uh, capacity that's being used. And, but there's also, I recognize that there's also some sort of creative uh, looking and saying, and, and saying, oh, might this be the case, Right. And I can, you know, in, in the process of a one-on-one relationship like that, it actually doesn't really matter if I don't get it quite right because I get corrected. And it's not a problem, you know, in that, in that relationship generally. Uh, but there is a certain amount of uh, just very naturally imagining what might be there for the other person. It's interesting. And um, again, it's kind of ongoing and it's constantly being corrected, but that's part of empathy as well. So that's a first practice that you can do. It's tuning in in that way. I mentioned the second practice is, uh, is similar, but it's really focusing on really listening, listening carefully, really tuning in in some way where you listen carefully to the entirety. You really focus on listening. You focus on curiosity and really go into a situation with, with uh, uh, the intention to listen and be curious. And I, I wanted to read something. Um, I forgot the book, but I actually had it on my computer. So this is a, this is a children's book about uh, a man who was empathic towards uh, plants and rocks. Do you want to hear this? This is called The Other Way to Listen. Does anyone know this book? You can go get it. It's really good. And so this is a, a, a small girl telling the story. I used to know an old man who could walk by any cornfield and hear the corn singing. Teach me, I'd say when we passed on by. I never said a word while he was listening. Just tell me how you learned to hear that corn. And he'd say, it takes a lot of practice. You can't be in a hurry. And I'd say, I have the time. He was so good at listening once he heard wildflower seeds burst open, beginning to grow underground. That's hard to do. He said he was just lucky to have been by himself up there in the canyon after a rain. He said it was the quietest place he'd ever been, and he stayed there long enough to understand the quiet. I said, I bet you were surprised when you heard those seeds. But he said, no, I wasn't surprised at all. It seemed like the most natural thing in the world. He just smiled, remembering. Another time he heard a rock kind of murmur good things to a lizard. I was there. We saw the lizard sunning on a rock. Of course, we stopped. The old man said, I wonder how that lizard feels about the rock it's sitting on and how the rock feels about the lizard. This is very deliberate empathy towards rocks and lizards. 
He always asked himself hard questions that take a while to answer. We leaned against another rock a long time past, and then he said, did you hear that? They like each other fine. (laughs) And I said, I didn't hear a thing. (laughs) He said, sometimes everything being right makes a kind of sound, like just now. It wasn't much more than a good feeling that I heard from that old rock. Were you surprised to hear it? I always had to ask. He said, not a bit. It seemed like the most natural thing in the world. So that's another dimension of listening. But but it's something that you can, sort of another angle on empathy practice is to go into a situation or, again, it could be out with the fields and just say, I want to listen. And again, uh, I love love the story because it's really extending empathy beyond the human realm. So that's the second practice. A third practice is to be conscious of our general boundaries about where we extend empathy to and extend the boundaries. You know, so this relates especially to what I was talking about in terms of social conditioning and implicit bias. This would mean to deliberately go beyond your usual boundaries of empathy. Could be in terms of... Um, Groups of people, you know, any of those social groupings that I mentioned, the main ones that kind of divide us, race, gender, age, social orientation, you know. And it can be amazing. I remember I had a very powerful experience which pointed me on the way of teaching when I was maybe 25, and I worked for a whole summer with a group of people who were 65 to 90 and spent a whole summer with them And it was extraordinary. And I hadn't done that, just to really be able to tune in. And they were, they appreciated tuning in to me. (laughs) You know, so there there are boundaries where we get segregated, right? And so it could be um, deliberately uh, going beyond one's usual boundaries in any of those ways. And it could be done through face-to-face meeting. It could be done through reading. It could be done through seeing films, you know, um, I think it was mentioned last time that they've done research that those who read imaginative novels actually score higher in empathy. There's research on that. And so there are ways to extend the empathy. It could be to say, uh, again, I'm, can I bring up your example, John? John was really drawn to um, help uh, Syrian refugees and went to Greece, what, for about a month, three, three weeks? Right, and gave a presentation here. And, um, you know, we can extend, we can, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to extend empathy in all directions. I think the practice would be being selective and saying, I want to extend it in this way. And say, I want to really get a sense, maybe, of what, the, what is happening with Syrian refugees. And that might lead me actually to act, right? Or I might do it in some other way. Um, and so these, these are very concrete ways, again, just to, just to take on one way of doing that, one way of extending one's usual boundaries. You might even ask, what, what calls me? If I had to extend in one way my empathy, how would I do that? Again, right now we're talking not necessarily about acting, we're just talking about bringing one's, making one's circle of empathy wider. 
You know, what calls you? Just take a moment to reflect. Now, for the last, uh, last part of the talk, I wanted to talk about the challenges of empathy, and this will get into some of the territory we didn't look at last time, and also say, give a little more at the end about the um, kind of what empathy looks like when it's uh, highly developed. You know, who are the empathy exemplars? Um, we mentioned some of the challenges uh, that occur when we're intending to be empathic. You know, obviously, one of them is just having certain mind states like being startled, being reactive, being fearful that make empathy very hard. You know, where we're, trying, we're more or less getting back to basic kind of survival, right? Or just safety, having enough safety. And so um, our mindfulness lets us know at times we may want to be empathic and we may get certain things coming at us. Aggression. Uh, we may have other people being judgmental uh, and so forth. And it's very hard to be empathic at those times uh, because there's just, uh, you know, the reactivity is there, the anxiety is there, and so forth. And I think that's real. What we can do in those times if we have an ongoing empathy practice, it's very important to, at that point, receive empathy. And one of the practices which we can do, very much like the first practice I just mentioned, is to give empathy towards ourselves, right? We can do a practice very much like that and say, oh, Donald, you're really kind of anxious now, aren't you? You're anxious. You are a little bit startled, right? And you can really tune into that or say it really matters to you to take care of yourself, right? But it also matters to have good communication, right? And you can actually give yourself empathy or maybe get empathy from a friend. But sometimes it's necessary to withdraw and it's not always possible to be empathic in the moment, even if you have that strong intention, right? Sometimes you need to regroup. Sometimes you can do that quickly. Sometimes it takes a little more time, right? But it's good to have strategies for how to be uh, empathic towards yourself or to, to receive empathy uh, from, from a friend. So that's one way to work with that difficulty. As we get better at working with empathy, we can start to try to bring empathy into situations where there's some tension. Maybe someone has a different point of view. Maybe you're talking about the election. Could happen. And someone has a different point of view about that or maybe about something else, and you notice yourself getting a little bit tense, right? Where you can try to stretch is trying to be empathic where there is some kind of difference or a conflict, but it's not large enough to be that threatening to you. So this is where it's very important to make an assessment of the degree of difficulty of a particular situation. I use the one to ten model for divers, like Olympic divers, right? What is the degree of difficulty? And actually to have a clear assessment for the nines or tens, you might need to regroup, 
leave the situation, take a time out, etc. What you can start to do is say, ah, I think this is workable. This is more in the three, four, or five range. And I'm going to try to be empathic, even though we have differences of views, right? To really uh, tune in in that way. And you can actually deliberately try to uh, tune in in that way, and it may influence how you interact with the person. And you can sometimes do this if you can keep your own center, even when there are different views. So this is a lot, I think, very helpful to this, is having mindfulness of the body and enough mindfulness so we're not just caught up with negative thinking. So mindfulness of the body, which, which is very important, I think, to keep cultivating. I've, it's a theme that I've continually brought up over the last years, that that can help us to be more grounded. Sometimes to keep in a difficult situation, one practice which I did for several years, which is done in martial arts, is to learn to keep your attention in your belly, in, the, in what the, is called in Chinese the tan tian. It's a center so that you're not immediately flooded. And so that permits the empathy to work. So some of this is actually finding ways to keep centered. There are a variety of ways to keep centered. One way is to be more grounded in the body and even have the ground in the belly. You know, and for me personally, being kind of a sensitive person growing up and having the experience often of being knocked around, grounding in the body and particularly in the uh, belly has been really crucial to help keep a center. You know? So that permits then to, so not so dominated by one modality, not so, you know, I think previously it would be just taken away emotionally, it'd just be hard, right? But when you ground more in the body, there can be a little more uh, flexibility. You can ground in the body, have more flexibility to go to uh, the empathy or to go to the heart and so forth. So that is a long-term training, you know, ground in the body and then even ground in the, in the belly. It's not, I guess I haven't talked about that too much, but it's really can be a very important practice. If you do something like qigong, you can develop that capacity quite uh, strongly, you know, and, and have, that, have that there, you know. I like to think that our ongoing training really has to involve mindfulness, wisdom training, heart training, and body training. And they're all fun. And there, it's, uh, it's really pointing towards uh, development in all the dimensions. So that's, that's a way of working with some challenges to empathy. So try to bring empathy into situations where, which are a little bit challenging on the way to bringing in into situations which are very challenging. Um, there's, there's a great story that... Uh, this book uh, by Marshall Rosenberg, Nonviolent Communication, has a, ch- a wonderful chapter in empathy. And he tells these amazing stories of how empathy... Now, he's, he's bringing, he brings a lot of situations up which are nines or tens. I thought I'd read one of these to you to give a sense of empathy. And what I got from his stories was that uh, when we're practicing with challenging situations or differences of views... We have to keep being persistent with empathy. You might have someone have a different view than you and be a little bit uh, agitated and judgmental. And you might say, you know, I'm I'm hearing a lot of emotion when you talk about that view. I imagine that it's very important to you. And the person might say, yeah, of course it is. 
you know, and I don't know how you could have your view. And sometimes we would hear that and we said, whoops, I guess, I guess some empathy didn't work. I'll go back to just being um, argumentative and judgmental. <laughs> right? And what I, what I learned from some of the examples is that often we have to be very persistent with empathy and come back many, many times, come back over and over, and that often after three or four times something shifts with the other person. So I'll read a story which uh, I found pretty powerful. And the, this book has stories about empathy, including, um, I don't know where he got these stories, but stories of people who use empathy in life-threatening situations successfully. I guess we don't hear about the ones for whom it did, <laughs> didn't work. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so here's a, let's see, here's, here's a story. He talks about the uh, relationship to being empathic and sometimes uh, just mentioning uh, one's own feelings with some vulnerability, you know. In, in, in other words, bringing it to what's there. And he said, once I showed my vulnerability to some members of a street gang in Cleveland by acknowledging the hurt I was feeling and my desire to be treated with more respect. I think this was at like a meeting at a, um, you know, like at a, um, summer program, I think, in, in Cleveland. And he, so he said he was feeling hurt and wanted to be treated with more respect. So the response he got was, oh, look, one of them remarked, he's feeling hurt. Isn't that too bad? At which point all of his friends chimed in laughing. Here again, I could either interpret this as taking advantage of my vulnerability and blame them, or I could emphasize, keep on, keep on developing empathy, even there. As I listened closely to the gang member's remark, oh, look, he's feeling hurt, isn't that too bad? And the laughter that followed, I sensed that he and his friends were annoyed and not wanting to be subjected to guilt trips and manipulation. They may have been reacting to people in their past who use phrases like, that hurts me, to imply disapproval. Since I didn't verify it with them out loud, I have no way of knowing if my guess was, in fact, accurate. So that's where empathy involves sometimes guessing, right? Um, however, uh, just however, just focusing my attention there kept me from either taking it personally or getting angry. So he just stayed with empathy as a focus. Instead of judging them for ridiculing or treating me disrespectfully, I concentrated on hearing the pain and the emotions and the needs behind such behavior. Hey, one of them burst out at that point. This is a bunch of crap you're offering us. So how many of us would have given up on the spot right there? <laughs> right. This is a bunch of crap you're offering. I suppose there are members of another gang here and they have guns and you don't, and you just stand there and talk to them? That's crap, <laughs> right? Then everybody was laughing again, and again I directed my attention to their feelings and needs. So it sounds like you're really fed up with learning something that has no relevance in those situations. Yeah, and if you lived in this neighborhood, you'd know this is a bunch of crap. So he's, he's keeping on coming back. So you need to trust that someone teaching you something has some knowledge of your neighborhood. Damn right, some of those dudes would blast you away before you got two words out of your mouth. And you need to trust... <laughs> it keeps on going. And you need to trust that someone trying to teach you something understands the dangers around here. I continued to listen in this manner sometimes verbalizing what I heard and sometimes not. This continued for 45 minutes. 
and then I sensed a shift. So he had persistence, right? But I think in our ordinary lives, it could be just a few times repeating. A counselor in the program noticed the shift and asked him out loud, what do you think of this man? The gentleman who had been giving me the roughest time replied, he's the best speaker we ever had. Astonished, the counselor turned to me and whispered, but you haven't said anything. In fact, I had said a lot by demonstrating that there was nothing they could throw at me that couldn't be translated into universal emotions and needs. Right? So that's quite something, isn't it? And um, I think those are nines or tens on a scale of ten, but we can practice with the threes and fours. And it, but the point, one of the points there is that this actually... Now, he was able to keep his center, right? A lot of stuff coming at him. Uh, I think there was a general presumption he was safe, right? And he could just keep coming back and something happened after a while because the idea is that empathy is actually is a way of, of touching and, meet, and meeting people at the level of the heart, right? And people have defenses and they have judgments and so forth. And you have to know the situation, right? have to be able to sense what is workable and what's not. So this sense of working up to the challenging situations is important. And though many of you know that with something like metta practice or compassion practice, as it's been taught traditionally for 2,500 years, there's a stage in developing metta practice when we do metta practice for the difficult person. You know, teaching met, a lot of metta retreats, we often get people who come to the retreats and their main aim is to actually develop an open heart for someone for whom they have great difficulty. And so they can't wait to get to the difficult person. A lot of them try to go there right away. And, but in actuality, in the tradition, one goes through a lot of training before you start developing metta for the difficult person. You really get the foundation first, and you practice first. And I think that's the same thing with empathy. We want to keep practicing it in relatively safe, uncomplicated situations and get the muscle stronger and stronger, then start extending it, right? Then start extending it to what I was calling the level three, four, five. Maybe you can try it with really difficult ones, but there has to be a kind of a gradation. We have to learn. And similarly, um, you know, there was, a, there was a story that Hadar told me of, um, and she gave me permission to, to talk about this, of being inspired by um, the possibility of empathy towards one's opponents. And she brought, uh, there was an article, you know, maybe a week or 10 days ago, from the New York Times, uh, which was an article by someone who was not in favor of Mr. Trump, but the article was deep, I, I thought, would you say deeply empathic? It had a lot of empathy for Trump. And, and, and particularly his followers. And there's a lot of good writing of that nature, right, that uh, uh, people don't always go to. And um, she showed this to people who would generally be called progressive and left-wing, and she got a lot of uh, negative feedback, right? Um, and we talked about this, and what seems to be, you know, we could... You know, make a few generalizations, and I think the first thing was to it was a, if I can say, it was a hard situation for you, and important to give empathy to yourself, 
right? Or to get empathy in certain ways. But what we, what we found with the situation was that this may have been presenting the model of empathy to some of these people for the first time and giving them a nine or 10 level degree of difficulty. <laughs> in other words, Trump may represent nine or 10 and they couldn't handle it and they had no framework for it, right? So we could actually have empathy for them being presented with a situation and they would, were actually negative, right? That it may be important first, if we're just gonna go there, to present a model or present a paradigm. We have that historically in the area of uh, social political events from people like Gandhi and King, right? You have, you have uh, Gandhi's model, really, that he, does, he didn't want to demonize the British, right? He wanted to be able to have tea with them, so to speak, and, or literally as well. And um, he wanted to have a kind of campaign in which after India was independent, the British might be friends, right? So it's a very different model. And similarly, you have with uh, Dr. King, you have a model of the beloved community, which includes everyone. And a notion that, and you know, if you read his writings, you find quite a bit of empathy for, uh, for his opponents and for basically poor racist whites, right? You find quite a bit of empathy and in a sense of their, their, um, the conditions that led there. You find that a lot and you have the model of the beloved community and you have that put into practice. Those are models that are models for the practice of empathy with differences of social and political views, right? And so it might make sense somehow to present that as an option. That might, might be, and you know, have people look into that and then, you know, or it might just be uh, maybe with that group you would present empathy without getting into difference of views and just say, let's try to, you know, practice empathy at our meetings by having brief check-ins before we begin our meetings so we know what each other are feeling, right? That could be a way of shifting the model, you know, where you might bring in the whole model of uh, um, what's our relationship to our opponents or people with different views, do we want to demonize them, have them as opponents? And you might bring in a different model. And some people may be ready for that and some not, right? For, for our practice here, you know, I was realizing as we were having that discussion, the basic model is that of the universal heart expressed towards all beings. It's, this is an ambitious model, folks. If you've signed up for this, it's a lot, <laughs> You sign, you know, that, that the intention here, you know, it's very clear in, in the tradition, it's very clear with metta that we are actually aspiring or intending to develop a heart that can, in the long run, be there for every being, not just for those in our inner circle. That's our aspiration. And again, we can see it as a developmental path that we don't go right to the hard stuff first, but that to have a sense that that is the aspiration can be a basis for our empathy practice and can be something that we, uh, you know, it can be a way to talk with people who may not have that model, you know. And there can be a lot of questioning of that, you know, of does that really make any sense, you know. Don't we always have to be selective with our empathy, right? And so forth. So you can, you can look into that. 
Another, um, I'll mention maybe a few other points. Um, Sometimes when we're practicing empathy, we have to realize that being empathic isn't just about being nice. That being empathic can go hand in hand with setting boundaries, saying no, telling someone this is not okay, and so forth, right? That uh, being empathic doesn't mean we're pushovers. There's a, there's a great story that some of you may know, which comes from the uh, Indian tradition, Asian Indian tradition, uh, and I think it came more recently into being well-known through the uh, writings of Ramakrishna from, from the 19th century. This is a story about a cobra who met a great sage. And the cobra was terrorizing the neighborhood, so to speak, biting people. Many of them died. And he happened to meet a sage who was able not to be bitten because he knew a lot of very powerful mantras, (laughs) which he uttered. And in the text it says the snake became like an earthworm. <laughs> and then, the, then there was a dialogue between them. Maybe this was interspecies empathy at work. And, and the, uh, uh, the snake became a disciple of the sage and, the, uh, and, as it were, entered the spiritual path. But the, the sage said, you have to agree not to harm people. And the snake said, okay. And so the snake didn't bite people anymore. And, uh, but uh, when the local people, particularly the young kids, found that the snake wasn't biting, they started hitting it, and it was actually close to death, and all beat up and you know, unable to circulate so much when the sage came back again. And the sage said, you know... Um, you're in bad shape. And, and they had a discussion, so to speak. And the sage eventually said, I told you not to harm people. I didn't say not to hiss. <laughs> and so they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> so you get the point? Right? Sometimes you have to hiss or set boundaries or say no. And can one do so? with empathy and kindness in your heart. Not so easy, right? But it's possible. Probably a lot of you have done that with children, right? Where you try to set boundaries, say no, or maybe with people close to you, right? That this is a capacity, and that's what's being pointed to. So that's just to correct a possible misunderstanding about empathy, that it can go along with hissing, empathic hissing. We'll, we'll practice that later. Okay. Um, Maybe just one or two more things. Um, Let me just finish. I had some other stories, which which I think I won't tell for, for reasons of time. But just to say that when we kind of follow the lead of the cobra and the sage and of teachers like uh, King and Gandhi, there is a, there's a, a movement towards empathy being developed at a higher and higher level. And 
as I mentioned last time, I think that empathy practice is a kind of practice of interdependence and a practice of uh, not-self in, in the Buddhist tradition, in the sense of uh, the Buddhist teaching, that it's a way in which we move beyond the normal barriers and sense of separate self. That empathy, in terms of what actually goes on, is there's this field of resonance. And if we were, again, if we were drawing, making a, a painting of empathy in this room, we wouldn't see what our eyes sometimes tell us is the reality, which is a bunch of separate selves, each in different bodies. We'd actually feel this field of waves and movements and pulsing with, with local identities. You know, there is individuality, but it's not so separate as we think. And I think that's what empathy points to. Empathy points to more of a sense of interdependence and more of a sense of not being so wrapped up in ourselves. When we just let this very innate capacity be expressed. I'll end there. I have some other quotes, but I'm going to just end. I think that's a nice way to end and give some time for any discussion or questions or comments. So it's really pointing to this as a, uh, a possible foundational interpersonal heart practice that we can work with in those three ways uh, that I gave, the, the interest in tuning in, especially to emotions and to a sense of what matters, number one, listening and curiosity, number two, and number three, um, going beyond the usual boundaries in some way. Yeah, please. Any comments, questions? So, John, please. I'd like to share a fourth way, uh, a strategy that actually I learned from you about a year ago um, in one of the talks you mentioned uh, you had a conversation with a woman that she shared with you uh, I guess a mantra or intention a phrase that she used um, which was uh, may I live each moment in kindness mm. and that had a profound effect um, it's such a simple phrase mm. but very very profound in terms of living each moment um, it's not may I live each day in kindness but each moment in mm -hmm. kindness yeah. and I start to apply that um, in my life in terms of just interactions with people and so yeah. on probably in the threes and fours category yeah. and uh, eventually um, it, I think it, it became like integrated so that I didn't have to think about that phrase every moment of the day yeah. or um, throughout the day um, but that kind of strategy or practices was very very important in developing empathy yeah and I yeah. think I think that you know empathy compassion generosity sacrifice um, those are all aspects of kindness yeah and and, and, and the reality or, or the the, the phrase of may I live each moment in kindness yeah. um, really helps develop that empathic heart. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, John. It really gives a lot of focus, you know. So it could be may I, may I live each moment with kindness or may I go into this meeting or this discussion with kindness. And 
And really, I think it's, they're almost like different entryways to the open heart, to the kind heart. Empathy could be a little bit different than leading with kindness, but these are all these different entryways. And I think as they get developed, they kind of merge, you know, like I think that's what you're pointing to as we, if we would say lead with kindness, it may not explicitly always be about empathy, but there's something happening that makes empathy possible. And I think as they get more and more developed, maybe our doorway is kindness, but then at a certain point, empathy is there as well. And generosity, like you say, or my doorway may be generosity, or may, my doorway may be patience with people, right? And there are these different doorways. I think it's, it's helpful to, to point that out. And they, and they uh, will tend to bring about empathy, yeah. And if they're brought in conjunction over time with, with these other practices, can be very rich. Because one of my, uh, again, when I think of my, uh, one of my Tibetan teachers, Mingyur Rinpoche, he says, when you do several practices, more or less, you know, in the same several days, they mingle. They connect, they integrate. Yeah. Thank you. So right behind and then right in front. Yeah, okay. And then I think Anna, you had your hand up too. Did, okay. Yeah. Uh, close to this the discussion. Oh, this discussion um, reminds me of a challenging situation for me when I encounter closer. when I encounter people sitting uh, outside a parking lot or sitting on the street asking for spare change. And um, a suggestion Steve Armstrong had uh, gave to me and the practice was to set an intention one day to engage yeah. those, those people yeah. and discuss with them why they're there yeah. without judgment and yeah. just listen. And sometimes that results in uh, the need to set those boundaries because you might ask them, how much money do you want? And they say, how about $100 yeah. after you've engaged with them? Yeah. Yeah, so that would be one way of extending boundaries. And remember the... Last time I gave uh, a list of six habits of highly empathic people. I think Roman uh, Kisnark, and one of them was uh, engage with strangers. You know, kind of stretch your boundaries. Yeah, to tune in. I I actually, when I meet people who are uh, asking for money on the street, I like to talk with them some. And they, they love that, right? Imagine what they experienced during the day. Yeah. Uh, right behind. Uh, can you accomplish this with people that have died? Excuse me? Can you accomplish this empathic connectedness with people that have died in your life? That have died? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. So can one develop empathy towards uh, people who have died. Um, kind of similar to the question we get, can one practice metta towards people who have died? I think one can, certainly for one's own sake, uh, in terms of understanding them better, one can um, be empathic with what you know of them, you know, to try to say, what were, you know, what were they, you know, what were they feeling or what, what mattered for them? Certainly that kind of empathy can be very important and very healing, right? If, especially if there have been some challenges in the relationship, uh, approaching them empathically, even though they're not there to 
respond necessarily, certainly not in the usual way, uh, can be, I think, very potentially very important and very healing. Is that, were you getting at that, Sam? Yeah, yeah. And then, um, yeah, and uh, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, people can actually, in a way, have dialogues with people who are no longer alive that, are, that use the imagination, where you even not only are empathic yourself, but you, you get responses. <laughs> okay. uh, anyone else? Yeah. It, it might it might be a, a little too late in the morning for this question. Yeah. Um, but it seems to me that at a certain point, and I'm probably referring to those nine and tens, when empathy can actually um, get in the way of doing what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And and I'll I'll use as an example the greatest 10 I could think of if we were transported back to Nazi Germany. Yeah. And we could certainly spend some time with empathy, understanding what's happening there at that time, but couldn't that get in the way of reacting in a way that you need to or that the world needs you to? Yeah, yeah this will be the last question because it's... Uh... Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it, it is maybe a 10 or beyond a 10. So I think it's important to point out there are different uh, aspects of empathy, and it really would depend on what your, uh, what your aim was and what point of time. You know, for example, um, probably if it was before the Nazi takeover, having empathy towards the followers could be a very important part of a, stra- of a political strategy, much as it is with any right-wing movement where uh, followers have legitimate pain, but they're manipulated and, and people are scapegoated, right? And so I think that's maybe more relevant for our country, right? That actually empathy towards the followers at, you know, before the consolidation of power could be extremely important to kind of tune in and not simply demonize the, the followers, right? It could be... Uh, very important. Um, um, yeah, it really depends on what kind of action one is contemplating. I, I think that I think that some degree of empathy is always going to be important because it's basically being human, you know. And, and uh, empathy, practicing empathy, doesn't uh, mean that you speak it or that you do much with it necessarily. It could just mean to tune in. You know, um, you know. On, on a, again, recognizing that this is extreme, it would be to uh, um, not to uh, not to dehumanize even people doing awful things. Again, that's that's te- ten level practice or more, right? Uh, people like King were doing that. Not as extreme situation, right? But. Uh, can one not not demonize, still see this person as human? You know, um, I'll just end. I, there's there's a book which which I which I've read, which has been very influential for me, which is called uh, Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust, where you find uh, peop, some of the great Hasidic uh, masters of Eastern Europe, 
um, you know, large numbers of them were in the camps. A certain number of them survived and they told stories. And what you find there is actually them keeping uh, their humanity, even in those extreme situations, for a lot of them, at least the ones who told the stories. And so, you know, and some extraordinary stories, you know. Um, you know, one story that comes to mind is where a particular Hasidic teacher from Poland was at a camp where they were doing the selection process, you know, right to work left to the chambers, gas chambers, right? And he saw that the person selecting him was someone he had known in his town. And he just said, good morning, Herr Muller, right at that spot, you know, in the, um, in the camp. And um, Herr Muller responded by pointing him towards the work uh, contingent uh, and he survived. And he, he said when he was telling the story, it's always important to have a good morning for your fellow human beings. That's a high level of uh, remembering. But I think, you know, I think for a lot of people it might be uh, to be p- too preoccupied by empathy in those situations would be a mistake. But I think it's really a matter of... Uh, of Something I didn't bring out, and it's actually in my notes, I was going to bring out how empathy relates to all the other perspectives and practices. It's not a solitary practice. You always connect with wisdom, with skillful action, and that could mean that sometimes empathy takes a back seat too. But but always, I think, there in some way, because it means your heart's still there. And to do that with the extreme situations is uh, very, very difficult, but seems to have been possible for some people. So it's a longer answer than I contemplated, but thank you. So take a moment and see if you want to. How many of you would like to practice empathy in the next week? How many of you say, not for me? (laughs) Okay. And uh, so set your intention for how you might do this. It could be with John's suggestion just to have an attitude of kindness, or you might like that formal practice of tuning in to emotions and a sense of what matters and see what see what calls you and see how you're going to what would help you to remember this <clears throat> And then we remember that, again, very clear in the example of empathy and empathy practice, that we do this not just for ourselves, but we do this for others. And may this, uh, may our morning and our practice be a benefit for all beings, which includes all of us. Yay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.